What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Mr. Cool B, Ben Prentice, and Colin from the Bitcoin Echo Chambers podcast to talk about the website they created. WTF happened in 1971.com. What the fuck happened in 1971? We uh, talk about uh, the trends that have been happening in America, particularly around productivity wages and the gap in inequality that has been growing significantly since something happened in 1971. We talk about Bitcoin as a revolutionary act and very much in line with what the founding fathers of the United States uh, had in mind when they when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and constructed our Constitution. I think you guys are really going to like this one. One note, I um, I think I misrepresented Jeff Booth's uh, stance on UBI in this after having spoke with him yesterday. So uh, please disregard me uh, misstating his... Uh, don't disregard it. Just know that uh, I, I think I may have misstated his stance on UBI, and you'll learn more about that um, early next week when I post that episode. Uh, this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping you stack sats. They're helping you send sats, receive sats, uh, sell sats if you so please. They're helping you buy sat, stack sats Excuse me, on a, a particular cadence, too. They have DCA function now. I, I finally got it in my app. You can... Uh, decide to buy a certain amount and then if you want to do that on a daily weekly monthly basis you can set that up within the cash app on top of that they're helping you stack slivers of stonks if you want to you don't have to but you can via cash app investing if your favorite stonk if you're investing in stonks uh, is a little too expensive you can buy as little as one dollar using the cash app on top of that they have their boost program and it helps you save money. A partner merchants, you get your little personalized debit card. You put your signature on it, a little Bitcoin sign on it, a little lightning bolt, whatever you want. Uh, then you in, enable the boost with the partner merchant. You go there and you save a little money. You can stack some sats with that. Uh, and since this is all connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods to stack sats or stonks. Uh, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. As always, use the code stacking sats that's s-t-a-c-k-i-n-g-s-a-t-s when you download the app you're going to get ten dollars and ten dollars going to go to our good friends at owls lacrosse that's owls lacrosse enjoy this episode i know i certainly did You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here for the second recording of this Wednesday. Second of three. It's three recordings today, boys. It's a, it's, a, it's a busy day here at TFTC, but a very exciting day, hitting on three different topics, and this topic is something that I am infinitely fascinated by. It's something, infinitely fascinated is my uh, phrase of the day, by the way. Uh, it is really what drove me to Bitcoin. Uh, it's, it's a strong economics topic, uh, which is what I am most interested in when it comes to Bitcoin and, and why I think it's important. Uh, we're going to dive into the what the fuck happened in 1971 site. WTF happened in 1971. I'm sitting down with the co-founders of the site, Ben Prentice and Colin, uh, a.k.a. Heavily Armed Clown from the Bitco Ec- Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast. What's up, boys? What's up? What's hey. up, freaks? <laughs> glad to be here glad to finally uh get this in the books i mean ben and i met in person uh about, probably about this time last year mm. um in new york city and uh heavily armed clown i'm just gonna call you colin sure it's easier. yeah it's easy colin uh i was on your podcast what two years ago you were actually point? one was... of my first guests actually i was like yeah. some rando and i was just i just hit you up and you were like yeah sure i'll come on yeah 
I uh, I remember your dog on the chew toy in the background. Yeah, that was something you were worried about. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, yeah, no, but I mean, this is a site I've been talking about and sharing a lot uh, on this podcast, in the newsletter, and just in general conversations. I just tell people go to www.wtfhappened in 1971 uh, to to sort of get an idea of why I'm into Bitcoin and why I think it's important. So. I'm not going to describe the site. You guys are the ones who uh, built it. So let's get into why you build it and what's going on on the site. Yeah, just very briefly, um, I was just doing research on on Bitcoin and, and trying to understand, you know, why Bitcoin would be better money. And, and you know, we we all probably the the freaks out there know that the ending of the the what, quasi gold standard we had from 1944 to 1971 was uh, executed by Richard Nixon. I, Richard effing Nixon, I like to say, I'm not a crook. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, just one day came out and said, I'm just going to end the convertibility uh, temporarily. Of course, that was, you know, over 50 years ago and he hasn't ended it. But in your research, um, you probably find yourself on Wikipedia pages for Bretton Woods and Nixon shock, and you'll see some of these same charts. And that's actually how I got onto this data. Um, and I started just kind of collecting them being like, oh, that's pretty weird that all these charts just start going absolutely crazy in 1971. And I collected enough of them that, you know, Colin and I were just joking one day. We were like, well, you know, what happened in 1971, dude, what the WTF? And he was like, dude, we should throw this up on a website and we, we did and that's that's the story it's just that we just found this data and it's like i, th I think it's pretty alarming i, th I think we started it as a, for like our own selfish purposes too because we were both kind of like man wouldn't it be great if there was just one place where you could go and like look at all of this data because it's it's all over the place like there wasn't really anywhere that, that ben and i were aware of where you could find a collection of data that just showed the anomalies that happened after 1971 um and and so I was kind of just like, well, let's just like, we should like compile a list, you know, like get all this in one place. And the meme kind of just evolved out of that. And we didn't, I don't think Ben and I expected, you know, the, that website already has like 100,000 views. I don't think Ben and I expected that many people to be interested in it, you know, to be, to be quite honest. But I think the meme really lands with people. I mean, you see it getting shared all over the internet in places you would never expect people to be talking about um, the, the breakdown of the gold standard. Where's the weirdest place you guys have seen it popped up? Like Bernie Stan like are Bernie Sanders for president on Reddit or like like a lot of like leftist forums on the internet. Um for some like I I didn't know this, but like they're critical of the monetary system too. Uh they they would rather, you know, and I I don't know if that's like a cognitive dissonance thing, like if they don't really understand um that that it really just makes socialism more impractical but um the, we've gotten a lot of we've gotten a lot of hits from like far leftist like socialist slash communist communities yeah that's one thing that's always perplexed me or not perplexed me always pissed me off is that you have um you have like polarized people in politics left versus right and blue team versus red team and they fight over these policies uh, that really just strike at the branches of the problem where the money is the root of the problem and i i think the i don't think politics would be as polarized if people are focused on the root of the problem which is we fucked up the money right and we fucked it up really bad in 1971 yeah. particularly i absolutely agree one of the things i often talk about um when talking about bitcoin is that we run around trying to put out all these fires you know through politics and uh you know if you look at this data on this website you see all these these are the fires right and that we're like, oh, well, you know, wages aren't rising with GDP, so let's increase the minimum wage. Or, you know, um, you know, in, in, income inequality is bad, so let's um, tax the rich and, and give it to the poor. But those are the fires, right? Those, those aren't what started the fire. What started the fire is the broken monetary system. And it seems like so much of our politics is running around chasing, um, putting band-aids on things when um, it's clear that this bipartisan issue that everybody um, who cares to do the research uh, can see that the, the money is broken and yet nobody's talking about fixing the money except our, you know, the freaks and, and the rest of the Bitcoin community. It's, it's just mind blowing to me. You can even see Ray Dalio, um, you know, talk about that, you know, the system is broken and, um, 
that uh, that there's a paradigm shift coming, and yet, you know, somebody like him, it seems like it would be so obvious that that uh, that he would he would comment on these things. But uh, I don't know why it escapes that mainstream narrative so it's just so easily. It's it's just it's just hidden. <laughs> it and uh, another interesting thing too is like we've we've kind of cherry picked the data on the website. Like obviously we're we're putting stuff on there that is intentionally dramatic um, around the time period that we're that we're memeing, right? Because that's the point. We want people to look at the website with no, you know, prior knowledge or understandings of finance or economics and see the data and just say, what the fuck? Um, so there's tons of data that like Ben and I would love to put on there, and this is a constant crisis that we're in. Like go back and, and look at um, the annualized cost of a four-year undergraduate degree. And, and if you really like dig into the data, you'll see that it has gone exponential, but it didn't really go exponential till the eighties. And there are almost always like second order effects to these types of things. Um, and, and some you saw happen almost immediately after 1971. And then for some, there's like lag time. It, it waited for, for policy to catch up. It waited for um, lending models to catch up. And I would love to put, you know, the, the annualized cost of a four-year undergraduate degree on the site, but we don't want to hurt the meme. That's kind of what, because the meme has been like the biggest strength. And, and if we can get people who had no interest in these things, just simply looking at the numbers, just simply asking the question, what the fuck happened in 1971? Like that is, that makes Ben and I's day. I mean, that's everything that we've ever wanted to do is just get more people to care about this thing that we're obsessed with, which is, you know, the money. Yeah. And it's funny you bring up college tuition uh, and how that started hyperinflating. And that's actually something I've been looking into more recently. And I would attribute that more to MMT-like uh, qualities where you have FAFSA-like programs popping up in the 80s like you described. And when the government started giving out grants and mm -hmm. just letting people get free loans, or not free loans, but easily accessible loans subsidized, for these college degrees. Yeah, Subsidized, no default uh, uh, loans. Yeah, that's... Um, that's when you you start to see the the really big spike in college tuition prices and this is fascinating to me as a subject college tuition alone because it, it trickles down to like the high school um the high school area too like i went to a, i was lucky enough to go to a private high school and when i started it was like twelve thousand dollars when i graduated it was 17 so within four years when i went there it increased almost 50 percent uh, and then uh, now it's like twenty four thousand, so it's over a hundred. It's a hundred percent of where I started fourteen years ago. So you have a hundred percent inflation there over, let's say, fifteen years. Um, and yet, like we were discussing before we hit record, none of this shows up in the CPI or anything. The things that are hyperinflating the most are 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 not really uh, counted for in the metrics that attempt to track track inflation. And it's just honestly like evil to a certain point because you tell people like you need to go to school you need to get a college education if you want to be successful and they're really forcing people into an asset it's not an asset class but into uh into schooling that is becoming increasingly more unattainable for your average american yeah especially in the modern day when we have this paradigm where anything you really need to learn you can learn for free on the internet and there's this accreditation chasing that our society does when really a lot of that I feel like is, is not as relevant in the, in this modern day, you know? Yeah. And more important. So not, I've been diving more into this and try, and let me, I'd be very much interested to get your thoughts on this. Like, Cause uh, we have MMT becoming very popular in the mainstream now. Uh, Joe Weisenthal's of the world really pumping it and saying that it's the future. And I even have some Bitcoiners saying it's inevitable. It's coming. And they all argue that it'll never lead lead to hyperinflation, but so like, am I right in saying that maybe college education is the first foray in MMT? It just hasn't been talked about in that way over the last few decades, where you have the government basically giving out money for free to something they deem is a necessity. And we have seen, I would argue, like close to hyperinflation in that realm, and it trickle and again it trickles down to the high school. And now even grade school and preschool where you say, hey, you offer the loans to the colleges and the institutions are like, all right, if the government is going to be giving 
they don't offer it to the colleges. They offer it to the students, excuse me. And the universities go, if they're going to give it to the students, we can jack our prices up because we know they're going to get that money. And then you go down a la- layer to high school and you're like, hey, if you get your college degree, it's going to be worth this much. So preparing for that is worth this much now. And you just have a terrible cascading trickle-down effect that really increases, again, one of the things that is considered a cornerstone of American life and a necessity for, for most. I would agree with everything you said there, um, but I, I, I try to take it a step farther and, and say that, you know, will MMT lead to hyperinflation? Well, uh, you know, a lot of people ask the question and, and even made the claim that 2008-style QE was going to lead to hyperinflation, and we all found that wasn't the case. But hyper, uh, you know, inflation, as defined by the CPI, um, never really increased at all in 2008 and i think this is a really important concept to understand because especially if you're looking at the site and you see you know the massive cpi rise that happened after 1971 we saw a lot of consumer price inflation um, but obviously as, as you mentioned many times on the show before that um the way that you define the cpi basket um has a lot of outcome on on what that number looks like and and they've redefined that you know um i think once in the 1980s and then once again in the 1990s. But regardless of that, um, regardless of that manipulation of the CPI metric, um, I think the worst atrocities that have um, been thrust upon our society from this break in the monetary paradigm that happened in 1971 has come through the use of stocks and bonds as money and real estate as money um, by the wealthiest class. Um, Because see, you know, as Safedine will talk about you know, you can't insulate yourself from the consequences of others holding money that's harder than yours. And the money that's held by the wealthy is not U.S. dollars. It's stocks and real estate and bonds. And since 2008, um, you know, massive amounts of money have been dumped on this. And we're seeing that again now today. We all got our, you know, our $1,200 checks. But, you know, anybody that did the math out and realized how much money was printed, which, by the way, we, you know, you're talking about increasing 15% or 50% um, for your college in, you know, a few year time. Uh, we just increased the mon- monetary supply, the M1 monetary supply, 50% in, inside of like a month. And, and a lot of that money is still going to get dumped on the stock market. I mean, look, we're, we're in the worst economic uh, crisis that maybe this world has ever seen. And the stock market is up. That, I mean, it's absolute madness. And who is that benefiting? It's clearly the people that hold those stocks. And and that's largely a huge portion of that is just this 0.1% or whatever that they hold, you know, 70%. Or, I don't remember the actual numbers, though. but just inordinate amounts of, of, of that stock market, even if some of it's held by middle classers and, and such, uh, is just inflating their bags and, um, and, and they're coming out on top. It's just sad. Yeah, Colin. Colin, you had the stats from today. We got some numbers released. What were they? Yeah, the uh, GDP contracted the most today since 2008, but stocks just hit a seven-week high. <laughs> madness. Uh, Monetary madness. <laughs> it really is, though. And that's the weirdest thing to see in the mainstream is like the Kramers of the world, the CNBCs, Bloomberg's of the world just acting like this is all normal and, hey, this is going to help produce a V-shaped recovery. Um, like it makes me feel like I'm crazy sometimes. Like, am I missing something? Well, what the fuck is like? There's this does not compute. There's there's an obvious disconnection between reality and what's going on in the markets. Well, like to to touch back on the student loan thing, you know, there's, I think it's one point five trillion plus outstanding uh, dollars in in U.S. student loan debt. Um, you know, we, we, we get so abstract in the way we think about these things, but all that is is capital allocation, right? And I mean, capital allocation is prone to malinvestment. And that's pretty much the name of the game in the United States financial system is malinvestment. But as these, these busts come, um, the more we rely on QE and the more we rely on inflation and, and now, you know, even airdropping shit coins into people's bank accounts, the more we postpone that liquidation of malinvestment. And it's no wonder, you know, that things are continually getting more and more confusing, like just outright make no economic sense. Like GDP goes down, stocks go up. Explain that. You, you can't. It's silly. But if the longer you postpone malinvestment, malinvestment is not being punished, right? So, of course, it's going to continue. And, and that's probably what the student loan bubble ultimately is, is just one big, giant malinvestment bubble. Because has you know, that $1.5 trillion of debt returned $1.5 trillion or more, 
you know, in, in capital returns for the society as a whole or for the individuals who attend the school? Probably not. I would, I would assume, you know, I, I haven't done any research on it, but I would assume if you looked at it as a whole, people going and getting four-year gender studies degrees are not um, getting a return on that investment. Yeah, and that, that kind of leads me to, I think, you know, this liquidation of uh, malinvestment that, that Colin's talking about here, uh, the, the the paradigm we're in right now is that, you know, there was, we saw a massive uh, deflation right at the at the start of this, this crisis because people were taking money out of stocks and real estate and they're putting it into the most liquid good, which money is supposed to be the most liquid good. And the USD is the most liquid good. And, and that has deflationary pressure, but we're facing absolutely massive deflationary pressure um, just right now as a society because this malinvestment is is trying to liquidate itself um, especially in light of this crisis where we're, we're starting to see the water recede and see who has you know who has the swim trunks on um, and those those businesses that you know weren't sound um, and to begin with um, should should be liquidated right and and that would cause um, deflation and and loans you know so many you're talking about student loans but there's absolutely um uh, just the systemic uh corporate debt um and, and you know you talk about this the zombie economy that that should be liquidated as well so that's also massive deflationary pressure and you have it being met with the fed who their job is to um ensure employment right and um to stabilize prices, so they're printing money. They're 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 executing their mandate, and they're printing money as, as a kind of combating this massive deflationary pressure. And I think that leads to these these situations where we say, you know, these things don't seem right at all. Um, that the the data just doesn't it it doesn't seem rational. It certainly doesn't seem rational. I mean, it's getting more irrational by the day, like you described, like the zombie companies and the the high yield corporate debt i mean all the bonds the clos that went from double a triple b to 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 junk basically in the last couple months is laughable i mean it reminds me of the problems that uh, smp and moody's and and fitch um sort of created by not uh accurately rating the the cdos that existed during the mortgage back the mortgage crisis in 2008 uh it seems like we're repeating the same uh, mistakes just in a different asset class and that seems to be the solution to these problems like all right print a bunch of money and then like go dump it into another asset class where it hides for x amount of time and then that pops up boils over and, and we have another crisis somewhere down the line yeah can, can i, I want to comment on that really quickly um i i think you know, WTF happened in 1971 is its own rabbit hole. And one of the rabbit holes that's taken me down is the Euro dollar rabbit hole. So if you, you know, the, the, I've mentioned this before, the, uh, the Euro dollar university series on macro voices is like, it's like eight or nine different podcasts that are at least an hour and a half. It's like, it's like 20 hours of podcasts and I've listened to the entire thing twice and I still don't understand all of it, but I've taken a bunch of notes on it. And, and one of the most interesting things that I've, I've discovered is especially during the Basel Accords that happened in the 1990s leading up to 2008 is that um, the way that they've defined how banks use money, they, the banks are, are using non-USD. They're using other forms of money. Just like I was saying, the wealthy use stocks and real estate as money. Well, the real estate got packaged up into these uh, MBSs and the super senior and all these different tranches of mortgage-backed securities. Um, and that is the underlying money of our economy. And the reason that it is, is because USD is such a poor money. It's such a poor store of value that the, the banks and the underpinnings of our, our monetary system are using other things of money. And when you use uh, other things that might have better store value characteristics, but also bad monetary uh, characteristics that are only used because of the propping up of the US dollar, then it leads to other issues that we saw just actually explode in 2008. And you're, you're saying that we're seeing hints of that kind of crumbling now, even in this crisis. And I just find that so fascinating. And, and it's easy to see, you know, looking back like six to 12 months ago, I don't think there were a ton of economically savvy Bitcoiners or economically savvy Austrians who were surprised by what's by what's happened you know like coronavirus or not um you, you go back and look at like anybody who was in the know like 
eight, eight months ago, 12 months ago, they were tweeting about like yield curve inversions. They were looking at the bubble in the junk bond market. They were saying like, look, people are here, they're searching for yield, they're taking way too much junk debt. These corporations are lending at just ridiculous rates just because they can. Um, they have no business doing it. And, and it was clearly in a bubble. And, and just like Ben just said, it's because people are searching out alternative forms of money, right? Because, I mean, sovereign debt particularly is just about close to as good as money um, for now or, or has been in the past. Who knows if that will continue to be the case, um, if, if those loans will continue to stay solvent. But all it is is a search for good money. That the, It's the market trying to find a better store of value than the U S dollar. Yeah. And, but guys, everybody's, everybody's selling their assets for dollars right now. It's the strongest currency in the world. Every, every foreign country is, is, is trying to get access to dollars and that gives it strength. That's a problem. What are you for talking the about? US. What are you, what are you talking about, man? That's a problem for the U S because then it deflates our debt. It makes our debt more heavy. Right. So they, that's why the central banks have to try to create inflation. And when they, they uh, execute this massive QE events and it doesn't create CPI inflation, uh, it just creates uh, you know, real estate and stock inflation. Now they're literally uh, they're airdropping money um, on, on, on the citizens. And I, I think that's very interesting. I think that's, a, that's another paradigm shift. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's one we were talking about before we hit record. This is where I think people have been talking about the fed's monetary base expanding for some time leading to direct hyperinflation and, and consumer good prices and obviously that has not been the case due to the fact that as we've been describing that qe money goes straight to assets like real estate and stocks uh, but when you start airdropping money into people's bank accounts you shut down the economy and millions more people have dollars that they can go spend on goods that seem to be getting scarcer and scarcer that is a perfect storm for a hyper hyperinflationary environment. And I tweeted that out over the weekend. I got a lot of shit, but honestly, I think it's a very big blind spot uh, in the policy that's being enacted in reaction to the, to the quarantining that's going on is, is are we sure that we can uh, absorb those dollars without any significant amount of inflation and consumer good prices? Well, and, and Ben has a really good point about inflation. You know, when you print money, uh, you have to distribute it. Um, what's the what's the word? Unequally, like it, it has to go in a certain proportion to one party more than another. Because if you just print, you know, more money and give everybody the same amount, nothing changes. It, you're in the exact same like situation. Maybe for like a day, you might have a little bit more spending power, but. Like in, even in the midterm, nothing changes. All that changes is your unit of account, you know, it gets another zero. So you have to distribute money that you print uh, disproportionately to different populations. And, you know, m maybe the argument could be made there that they're already disproportionately distributing so much money to um, certain populations, you know, like with the corporate bailouts and, and things like that, that a little bit of uh, airdropping on, on U.S. citizens is just kind of counteracting that uh, a little bit. And, and maybe that's a naive way of looking at it, uh, but I'm just trying to play devil's advocate on that a little bit, trying to maybe tease out a potential uh, other side to it. The other problem with this, this method of trying to deal with this crisis that we, that we have is, is the airdropping of money on people uh, is, is a form of welfare. And when you start a form of welfare, it's very difficult to stop. And there's already a lot of discussions that we can see um, about UBI uh, becoming more and more of a possibility. And if UBI becomes a, a reality, um, I, you know, I don't think you can ever turn it off once you turn it on um, because it would, I, I think it would destroy the people that had come to rely on it. And that certainly will cause inflation. Um, all the studies that Andrew Yang did um, for his campaign uh, were like super localized. Like I think they did a study in Alaska. They're like, oh, UBI didn't cause inflation. Uh, okay, if you print a whole bunch of money and give it to people and they go buy stuff, it causes inflation. Uh, I don't care how you, you know how you slice it. Um, and and that um, that would be bad for for savers and it would be bad for fixed incomers and it would be bad for the people that are retiring right now. Um, I, I don't think it's good for anybody. Uh, inflation is, is, is awful. Deflation 
is is fen- phenomenal. Um, I, I you know I, I brought up the tech sector. Uh, uh, the actually I think you brought it up, Marty, when, before we hit record. Um, deflation is is phenomenal because it encourages us to save, and we can buy better products with the same money every single year. Um, I don't know why that's so hard for Keynesians to understand. Um, they that is or deflation is only bad for those who have lots of debt. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, this is nothing new to, to any of us here, but yeah. Like why would anybody want, not want prices to go down and to be able to buy more with their money? It's always perplexed me too, but going back to a couple points here, it's been funny that we've seen with the air dropping, like there's reports of people via unemployment and the Trump bucks making more than they were when they were employed, which is an interesting thing. So then you talked about the incentive of uh, taking that UBI away. It's, it's very hard to do that, like especially if people are already making more not working than when they were working. And, it, and it's easy to make the mistake of thinking about these things in a bubble or like in a vacuum, I think. And, and I do this all the time. Like I sit there and I think, okay, well, I mean, if they're just giving people money, it's going to cause inflation, of course, because even if your spending power remains the same, but you're getting more cash, like you're, you're going to go out and spend disproportionately because your economic calculation is, is disrupted. Um, but, you know, just thinking about that in the vacuum, yes, of course, it causes inflation, but we have a huge percentage of the working population right now sitting at home doing nothing, producing nothing, contributing nothing to the, uh, the, co- the exchange of goods and services. You know, like it's, it's, it's not how markets work. It's not what pulled us out of um, wearing loincloths and, and foraging for roots and berries. Like it's, it's just not the way human society flourishes to have everybody sitting at home doing nothing um, for an indeterminate amount of time without catastrophic economic consequence. And Maybe they're delaying it a little bit now, but yeah, inflation seems absolutely inevitable. More and more people, more and more people competing over fewer amounts of goods. Yeah. All right. And again, just on paper, that makes a ton of sense to me. And that's what I think is going to happen. We'll see if that plays out. But even beyond that, like you were, Colin, you were mentioning that like we've been talking like Bitcoiners and people have been paying attention, been talking about this for yeah, like almost a year when the, the, uh, when the yield curve inverted last year and then in September when the repo market started spazzing, like we predicted that something would, um, would go terribly awry in the economy. And, um, this is where like my little conspiracy bells start going off. Like, is this long prolonged shutdown, like just like a controlled demolition of something that was inevitably going to crumble within itself. Right. Because if, if you wanted to do like a currency reset, if you wanted to do like a sovereign debt default, right. And you understood that that would bring an entire economy to a grinding halt, that that would probably force a lot of people to lose their jobs. A lot of businesses to close a lot of people to sit at home and do nothing. Wouldn't it be better if all of those things were already going on so that when you caused, when you did the currency reset, when you did the debt default, you didn't um, shock the system that that system had already had time to adjust. I mean, you know, that that's pretty, that's pretty out there, but it's not impossible. You know, that's, that's not, I would, I would give that, you know, a non-zero um, probability. And you, you could take your, you could take your tinfoil hat off for a moment still and say, you know, even, even if this thing isn't engineered, uh, the, meaning the virus itself or, or the release of said virus, uh, at the very least, it's certainly an amazing scapegoat. You know, if, if you find yourself in this position where, Oh man, I, w- I would really love to blame this, you know, massive deflationary crisis uh, and 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 liquidation of all these malinvestments and and really the revealing of of all of the the things that the Federal Reserve have been doing to to quote prop up the economy as as actually being a terrible thing. Well, wouldn't it be great if there was something else happening uh, right around that time and and maybe it was just serendipitous and you know you don't you don't necessarily need. Uh, uh, you know the, the collusion between the U.S. and the Chinese to release some virus for that, that to be a reality. That here, here, here is this this case that now, you know, you have something to blame it on essentially. Yeah, you could totally just take advantage of the situation. Like, don't let a crisis go to waste <laughs> type of situation. <laughs> and again, and like Colin said, I believe there's a non-zero chance. I'm not saying that is the case, but just if you're playing out possibilities, that is certainly a plausible one. 
Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I had to bring that up because <laughs> something like it is. Uh, it's all relevant. It's right? almost too good to be. It's too good to be true that things were going like so bad. Um, it almost seems too good to be true. But who knows? I, I don't want to. I can't. I don't want to take us down some weird rabbit hole. Um, so, speaking of tech and tech deflation and that making things better for the economy overall and individuals overall. It's actually very interesting that we're talking about that today. It's a good warm up because I'm going to sit down with Jeff Booth, um, who the name of his book is escaping me right now, but I, uh, let me pull it up real quick. So I don't sound like a complete dickhead. <laughs> um, but he, he brings up the point in his book that, uh, tech deflation is, has done wonders for society and we're, we're, succeeding in despite of the inflationary monetary policy that we have going on in the world because of this tech deflation. The name of the book is The Price of Tomorrow. Thank you uh, for letting me find that. Um, but he also is an advocate for UBI. He's, he's under the impression that um, the advances that we're making in the tech sector on software and automation, AI, will supplant a lot of jobs. And unlike the times of the Luddites, who, who thought the factories are going to re- replace all the jobs and uh, there would be nothing to sort of come in to take that, uh, to fill in that void. He seems to be under the impression that there's going to be, there's going to be a void caused by this uh, tech deflation and advancement in software and, and automation. Sure. What are the lamplighters going to do whenever they bring these electric candles and put them in all the cities? I mean, it's going to be catastrophic, right? Or think of the buggy whip manufacturers, you know, uh, just just awful. Uh, you know, I, I, there was a response or there was a, a Peter McCormick thread uh, where he, he put out a question about, you know, what would we do under a Bitcoin standard? Um, you know, if the coronavirus came along and we needed to print a bunch of money to, to give to people to, to keep them alive or whatever. And I had a long response to his thread something along the lines of it, you know it's it's such a shame that this is happening in peak fiat times because you know Americans have no savings which Marty Bent you mentioned that on literally every episode it's like you know the, the whatever percent of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency there's absolutely no savings in the economy um, there's such malinvestment everywhere um, yeah if this if this AI revolution happens overnight it will be very uh, frustrating that that we're in this kind of fiat society and we're not prepared for, you know, any kind of black swans or anything. Um, I'd argue in in a sound money economy that we'd be much better prepared to deal with such things. Um, Obviously automation itself is supposed to uh, decrease prices, um, which is deflationary and that's phenomenal for everybody um, because if you can make something cheaper and compete with somebody else, then that's going to bring the price of that thing down. But, you know, we have these monopolies everywhere um, propped up by, by government regulation. And it, it's all of these fires that I was talking about earlier that, uh, that make these, these transitions for society much more difficult. You know, the buggy with manufacturers and the, the lamplighters that had to transition into a new job, yes, that was difficult for them. And, and it's sad that their investment in these these industries that were useful for society at some time um, was now kind of made obsolete, and, and that's that's tragic. But um, to prevent um, you know that that happening, to prevent the the transition into these technologies that made our lives so much better, um, is obviously not the right course. Um, and and just straight up handing money to people, um, which will cause inflation and all these other things, is not the right course either. So I, I don't have a a solution to your problem but it's just kind of a perspective on why it is such an issue well and you know it's always easier to think about these things um you break them down to the lowest level right and and i try to do this whenever i explain economics to to the lay person um you know it, uh disruption of industry through technological progress through changes in productivity they are a fundamental nature of markets you you can go all the way back to the invention of the first tool right i mean let's say you had like a whole bunch of laborers tilling the ground in a field with rocks and some guy comes up with the crazy idea to put the rock on the end of a stick and use it as a hoe. Well, now his productivity has increased, you know, hundred percent. And, and you can just hear, 
you know, the, the concern trolls coming to the front of the circle saying, well, how are, you know, we're, we're going to have to take half of these people uh, that, that work to till the fields with the rocks with their hands. And now it's only going to require half the people to till the field with these new tools. Like we can't allow this to happen. Uh, that, that, that is a, an essential nature of human markets. It frees up labor to focus on other problems, right? I mean, that, that is not a bad thing, but the markets don't owe you compensation for technological solutions that increase productivity. Unless you're the one that wrote that software program, unless you're the one that figured out tying the stick to the rock made you more productive to produce crops, right? I mean, you're not guaranteed a share of that increase in productivity. And then that kind of flies in the face a little bit of um, the first chart that we have on the website about the wages being tied to productivity. And then, you know, there was um, a schism that happened in 1971 where those two things separated. But all that really represents is the way, um, you know, that, that, that monetary shift, that shift in monetary policy disrupted what was up until that point a uh, fairly closely correlated phenomenon. Yeah, and I'd, I'd point out one more thing here um, on this whole big topic is that if you look at the last 100 years, uh, we've had immense increases in living standards, and none of that has to do with them printing money. It has to do with technological pro progress itself with deflation. Uh, it, it is much despite the inflation that these deflationary forces have caused it to be so much easier to, you know, I mean, we always point to this simple example of the washing machine that saves us time in our day. And, you know, as it gets cheaper to make washing machines and they become more ubiquitous, then our productivity as a society is increased. Um, that, that has been the progress that we've seen over the past uh, century. And it's much despite all of this, uh, you know, monetary uh, intervention, and and I, I I find it so frustrating when you when you argue with a Keynesian apologist that says something along those lines that you know oh but look look everything's working uh, so great we've seen all of these uh, increases in living standards and and I point to it's it's exactly the opposite it is the deflation that has has allowed us to uh, you know really prop up even even the the, the little man in our society. Um, what it's just an illusion. Yeah. And I'm a strong believer in that too. And it just innately thinking about the monetary system alongside this, these strong deflationary pressures in the, the tech sector and industrial sector overall, like industrial building technology is getting better uh, significantly over the last five decades as well. Like it just makes sense that you would want a, a sound currency that is hyper deflationary in a way where you can have a better uh, opportunity to save. And as prices are going down, the money that you are saving is going to be able to buy you more. Right. Like it just makes sense to me innately. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to the whole using, you know, money as the, the measuring stick for prices. And, you know, if I, if, if I'm trying to argue that it is the progress of society to, to decrease prices, to compete with people, and to, um, you know, increase uh, the the productivity of, of of your. I mean that that's that's what the market rewards people that can make something cheaper, um, or or make it more valuable for the same price. Um, that that it, it is it is that concept that that drives us forward. That is economic progress in itself. And when you have a sound money uh, that measures that progress. Um, then it, it reflects that in, in, in prices. But when you have a, you know, unsound money that, um, that, that can hide that, you know, I, I often talk about how the, the Federal Reserve targets 2% inflation nominally, right? Nominally. So if, if, if society as a whole is, is decreasing prices at, at 2% per year, then theoretically, uh, uh, they're just, they're just keeping everything flat. But if, if society in, uh, decreases prices at, at 10% per year or 20% per year. Well, then where is all of that 20% going if they're targeting the 2% nominal inflation? Uh, it, it takes a bit to wrap your head around here, but no matter how fast society progresses and decreases prices, on average, based on the CPI, they're going to eat it all up in inflation. And, and where is that money going to go? Well, I've argued that it's going to go get dumped on the stock market and increase the wealth of the 0.1% uh, the, the stuff. So. Uh, yeah, mull that one over. <laughs> no, that and then it's to a point where it's like a 
it's really a moral argument too. Like, let's talk about the externalities of going off the gold standard, what it's done for family formation, for life expectancy, for drug abuse, uh, like, uh, like money stress is a big stress. It's number one stress on anybody's mind. If you ask couples or individuals, even what they're most worried about, it's like money. And when you fuck up the money, you're going to really increase the amount of overall stress that exists in a society. Yeah, one of the charts on our website is uh, divorce rates. And one of the big pushbacks that we've gotten on that, uh, and this is something Ben and I kind of discovered independently, was that they changed no-fault divorce law in 1971. And up until that point, uh, there was no no-fault divorce clause in the United States. And a lot of people just, you know, even if they wanted to get divorced, they couldn't. And I understand, you know, like, of course, that's going to affect the statistics. Of course, like I said, the data is cherry-picked. It's a meme. Right. I mean, you know, if you actually think that WTF 1971 is like, you know, it, it, it's legitimate. You know, I'm not trying to say it's not legitimate, but it, it's, it's intentionally memed uh, to, to, to get more eyeballs on it, to get more people asking the question, what the fuck happened in 1971. But, you know, you look at any survey of, of married couples. And like you said, Marty, the number one thing that causes conflict in those marriages is money. So, of course, changing the money had an effect on divorce rates. Of course it did. It might not have been the only contributing factor, right? Networks systems are very complicated, particularly when they involve humans. There's lots of variables at play. Um, but to say that it was no fault divorce law and that money wasn't a contributing factor is just asinine. Yeah. And then the, the compounding effects of that, right? Like forcing, so the money stress drives both parents into the workforce, which means there's less time away from their kids to raise their children. Um, and eventually if the stresses get too much, they get divorced and that creates a psychological, uh, problem for the children. And then just the ripple effects of this policy, like, I don't even think they can be calculated if you've been tried to. Right. And it forces, you know, it forces, um, adults to dump their dying parents into nursing homes rather than bring them home to spend the last years of their life changing their diapers, uh, they, they would rather send them to a nursing home and let someone who gets paid minimum wage do it. And, and that's really a product of our, you know, the demand for time, demand for yield. Um, you know, people, people don't want to give up working that extra shift to be able to be home taking care of mom and dad, you know, with Alzheimer's or whatever. Uh, they, they have to, or at least they're feeling compelled to, to pawn that, um, to pawn that responsibility off to someone else. Uh, and they, they would rather work the extra, sh extra shift to pay for the nursing home costs. And that's really like indicative of like breakdown in greater society. I mean, and, and it's, and it's really destructive. Like you said, like that, that doesn't bode well for the future, you know, um, because it's, it has all of these compounding effects on the way that our, our families interact with each other on the way that we interact with our neighbors on the way that we think about the future. Shit, man. You just got me thinking we were on a sound money standard. Maybe this coronavirus wouldn't be as bad as it is now because it's attacking the, the nursing homes. And uh, maybe if people were more incentivized to have their parents living with them, you want to have a, a spread as, as vast as we've seen it up to this Not point. Not to mention we'd have more savings. I mean, I have a, a chart on the on the website that just 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 tracks savings over, you know, after 1971. And then actually it goes up for just a moment after 1971 in 2008 when there was a massive deflationary event as well. Um, but other than that, it's just been on a downward trend since because, you know, it's it's very clear that inflationary money uh, disincentivizes savings and, and incentivizes debt. And we have more debt um, than has ever really been a case before. And even as a nation, we have uh, we're the CBO just predicted. Um, I have a web. I actually have a chart on here that the CBO predicted uh, that that debt would go higher than World War Two. Well, that actually uh, already happened. I think it's just happening now. This this chart wasn't uh, early enough. The CBO just predicted that we're about to surpass the debt um, held by the public as a percentage of GDP from World War II. We're we're already about to surpass that um, just in this in this crisis. So um, yeah, just it's devastating, devastating to society. The other thing that we passed was um, Federal Reserve balance sheet as a percentage of GDP. We rocketed past all time highs on that. It's like. 30 or 35 percent now it's unbelievably high yeah uh so how do we get away from this i mean obviously we're all bitcoiners here we'd like to transition to a bitcoin standard but how do you guys think that happens 
practically, if at all. As Colin was alluding to earlier, the longer that this gets del delayed, um, the longer that this, this the capitulation needs to happen, the uh, liquidation of malinvestment needs to happen, um, the, the harder it gets. And, you know, I, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, what this transition to a Bitcoin standard would actually look like if it happened. And, uh, you know, some think it'll happen gradually and some think it'll happen suddenly. And some people say suddenly and then gra or gradually and then suddenly. Um, but regardless, it, it still will be a painful transition. Um, you know, Ray Dalio talks about uh, in his, uh, you know, the, the system is broken letter that, you know, the people that position themselves for these paradigm shifts are the ones that stand to profit. And, and what he's really saying there is most people won't be prepared for these things. Um, but what I'm trying to argue is that I think the longer this gets delayed and the more they, um, you know, more money they print, the, the, actually the worse it is for society to transition back to a sound money because it will cause massive deflation and that will be very terrible for, for, for people who, who own debt uh, or for, for people who have debt, sorry. Um, and I, I just hope in, it happens more, more gradually and I hope it happens uh, earlier rather than later. Um, that's my take on it. I'll be very clear that I believe the, the greatest cause of our strife is the disruption of power between the individual and the state. And I believe that fixing the money is the only way to claw back um, enough of that power to make a difference. I think that until you know you can take away the the seniorage and the credit expansion rights of the state, until you can hold them accountable for their own spending and for their own, um, you know, it, we know as Austrians that that democracies trend to socialism. That's just an inevitability, right? And the founding fathers of America understood that, and it's why Ben Franklin said when he came out of the Continental Congress, you know, when they said, Mr. Franklin, what did you give us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it, right? He understood that it took a society full of well-informed individuals who respected liberty in order to maintain it, you know, in a constitutional republic or, you know, even in a democracy particularly. And we don't have that anymore. I mean, the, the honest truth is that we don't have that anymore. And the only solution is to take back some of the power you know, the, the disruption of the power dynamic back away from the state. And if that isn't done, there won't be any fixing it. And that's really, that's what Bitcoin, that's what Bitcoin is, in, is intended to do. That's what it was designed to do. And if you believe anything else, you're, you're fooling yourself. I completely agree. Ah, it just got me all jacked up. And it's, it's, and it's disheartening, especially now during these lockdowns to see how little people do care about liberty and how quickly they are giving away their civil liberties in the face of, of fear, mainly the fear of the unknown created by this virus. And luckily, thank God we have Bitcoin. I can't imagine what life would be like right now if, if we weren't here and didn't have this easy exit option that exists. Because like, I can't think of any other tool that allows you to, to exit the system as directly as Bitcoin does that exists right now. Like, can you? I would be very pessimistic about the future uh, if it wasn't for Bitcoin. I, I would be, I was until I discovered Bitcoin. I don't, I don't see any other way, right? I mean, I love, you know, recently we added the Hayek quote um, to the bottom of the WTF 1971 website about finding a sly roundabout way to take money back from the government because Ben and I, we, we wanted to accomplish two things there. One, we wanted, we love that quote. And two, we wanted to make a subtle slight nod to Bitcoin because WTF 1971 is not um, Ben and I's marketing model for Bitcoin. It's just a way to try to wake up people to economics. And we don't want to try to sell anyone anything uh, with, with that process because I feel like it dilutes the message, right? Because somebody who already doesn't have an understanding of economics isn't going to understand why Bitcoin's important. And if you tell them to buy it because you think it's going to go to 100K you know, within a year, then they're going to think you're, you have an agenda. And, and you do, right? Everybody that's in Bitcoin is financially incentivized to get as many people into Bitcoin as possible because that's just the way money works. And we've never seen the monetization of a new asset before like this. And of course, it's unprecedented. Of course, it looks ridiculous when you when you project out, extrapolate out what you think the future looks like. But it's inevitable, and it has to happen. And Bitcoin is the only way, right? I mean, we we have to get to the point where Bitcoin is strong enough to resist attacks by the state, direct attacks that are funded by the expansion of money, by the expansion of credit, to try to control the network. 
We, it has to get to that point. If it doesn't, then it will fail. I think we're getting closer than most people expect. Um, I think, I think we're, I mean, 11 years in, it's been around for more than a decade. Like it would be, it'd be hard for me to imagine. It is hard for me to imagine that they're able to stomp this out. Uh, it's like part of the culture now. Everybody knows what Bitcoin is. They might not understand it, but they at least heard it and understand that it exists. Yeah, I could be wrong though. Maybe, maybe all the people who know what it is think it's dumb and should be, should be abolished. No, I, I think, you know, it's all about incentives. And I think like the work that you guys are doing uh, is incredibly important, right? Because you're providing an opportunity for yield in places that normally are desperate for it. Like you look at what's going on in, in the oil markets right now, and you look at this, this, this desperate need for solvency, this desperate search for alternative uses of resources to find yield. And Bitcoin is the solution for so many people in so many cases, like all of this excess energy, all of this waste energy, all of this unharnessed energy, you know, all across the board, energy is just a stranded resource. And if it can be harnessed for profit, you better believe that incentives of human nature will make that so. And that is so good for us. Yeah, no, I mean, knock on wood, it seems to be happening. I think, I think people are starting to have aha moments and, and what we're doing in the oil fields like it is and that's why i'm confident it's going to happen because it's like undeniable like how like the the opportunity cost of selling that gas down a pipeline or turning it into an ngl it it, it, it doesn't it, it's too much compared to just putting some miners on site and and turning it into bitcoin it's so much more profitable I think it's really hard for a lot of people to understand Bitcoin because, you know, as Colin just alluded to, this is literally unprecedented in, in human history. Nothing like it has ever happened. And I don't mean, you know, a distributed ledger of uh, computers reaching consensus. I, I mean, a, a real-time monetization of, of an asset. Um, we've seen, you know, things be demonetized in real time before, you know, you go back to the glass beads and the yappies stones from uh, societies that, that stored their money in, 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 in not a hard money or, or money that had other poor characteristics, but we've never seen something emerge um, just and be thrust upon the world and that, that had the potential to, to be such a you know a huge improvement upon money and because that's never happened there's absolutely no framework there's no economic model there is no way to compare this to anything before it and i think people have such a hard time wrapping their head around something that has never happened before and therefore we don't have a way to uh, incorporate that into our viewpoint we have to we have to develop from scratch and I, I i think it's it's such an amazing to you know thing to be a part of uh of the people that are actually trying to uh to interpret that and 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 actually try to understand this this event that you know the bitcoiners believe is is already underway and it's it's just it's so marred an illusion because people you know in the finance space that you think would be like all over this um they, their entire life is 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 made around trying to uh, profit from you know these the movement of these different assets in U.S. dollars, and it's so hard for them to get away from that. You know, oh, I can't wait for Bitcoin to go to 200k because then I can sell some and get more U.S. dollars because that's that's the end game, right? Um, the the end game has never been to hold on to uh you know government bonds and just forever and that's that's what you're, you're gonna have government bonds or or stocks and it's just that's that's the money now it, bitcoin is 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 the new money and i i don't know maybe i'm not articulating it well but i i think that's just so fascinating well something some ben and i have talked about too um it it's almost impossible to make baby boomers understand this narrative and it's it to a certain degree probably also gen x and the reason is because you know it, it takes a very asymmetrical thinker who's benefited from inflation their entire life um, to take a step back and say, this might not be good. Um, you know, you, you, you see like Ray Dalio, like kind of on the edge of that, right. Seeing it and, and looking at the, you know, the system that he's profited from his entire professional career and, and 
when he, once he gets out of it, he, he's able to take a step back and say, well, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Um, but you know, you take the average baby boomer and their solution, you know, to having nothing is to, well, why don't you just start acquiring assets? Right. And, and of course that's easy to say. Um, it's, it's easy to say when, when you at least thought you had a, a completely paid for retirement ahead of you, um, to point the finger at millennials and Gen Z and say, well, you're just lazy. You know, I worked for everything I had. I accumulated assets. They increased in value. You know, I bought my house for, for $2,500 or whatever. And now it's worth, you know, half a million. And I worked hard for this my entire life. And of course they did, you know, I don't want to take away, um, you know, the, the fruits of their labor, but how do you show somebody that has been on their, been the recipient of asset inflation their entire life that they have priced entire generations out of entering the system and they are now stuck at the bottom, right? And, and the, the social unrest that that causes, and of course, it seems like UBI is inevitable, right? I mean, you, you have uh, the average 20 year old today starting their life out with like six figures in debt. How are they ever going to start a family? How are they ever going to, you know, they, God forbid, they'll never be able to start a business. I mean, come on. And they still live with their parents too. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's, I mean, how do you ever get that's what I was going to bring up is the second to last chart on the page is uh, to your question, like how do you ever get a boomer or a Gen Xer to rethink this? And I think them noticing their kids are, are living with them and they weren't um, into their early thirties. So the chart ends in 20 middle of 2015. And so it's probably increased since this point, but the share of 25 to 29 year olds living with their parents or grandparents is above 30%. So it was a third of the demographic, which is pretty insane. And I don't think, I, mean, I don't think that there's anybody, you know, like, I don't think there are a whole lot of like late twenties, early 30 year olds that want to live at home with their parents. I mean, maybe there are some, I mean, in a lot of sense, I think that people, you know, you spend your whole, um, this is something I heard someone say the other day, a guy named Bill Cooper. I was listening to some of his older work. Um, you spend your whole young life trying to get away from your parents, trying to go and become, you know, self-sufficient. And then once we become adults, you know, many people spend their whole entire life trying to find someone to be their parents again. And in the most cases, that's the state, right? People want, they want to go back to that point in childhood where they didn't have to worry about anything, where everything was taken care of for them and they had no freedom, but they also had no responsibility. Right. And that drives like another point home. With all this money printing and now welfare, like, what does it mean for society overall when you have a bunch of individuals who just aren't motivated or driven to make their their lives better? Like, can we get out of this vicious cycle? There are too many people too far gone and dependent on the state that they, like you just described, they they're looking for that paternal maternal uh, arbiter of their life to to come in and and basically provide comfort for them. Have we? Is the pussification of the world gone too far? Misaligned incentives corrupts our culture, and you know, misaligned money uh, does the same thing. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I always try to remain optimistic. Ever since I found Bitcoin, that a, a sound money will tend to uh, breed a, a sounder society. So, you know, I never give up, man. I mean, yeah, things could look bad, but. Uh, I certainly hope that, you know, as, as, as Brady always says, the dawn of the Bitcoin renaissance, the, the renaissance itself uh, will be a renaissance of everything, culture and economics and everything. No, I agree. I'm an eternal optimist as well. Just got to play devil's advocate there. I like it. I like it. Uh, Push back. And it, there's a, and it's hard to deny. Uh, there's a hey quote. Um, I, I don't remember like the exact wordage, but it goes something along the lines of, um, you you know, uh, strength of strength of character and um, strength of will, or something like that, are nearly impossible to find in a society where men are not confident that could they, that they can make their way by their own efforts. I believe it was Hayek. Powerful. I mean, it it makes a lot of sense. Like, why why even strive to be greater if you don't think you can do it yourself? If you if you're looking at uh, history of the last five decades, not being able, most people not being able to save enough money to even retire or retire in comfort, like why even work hard? Why do that? Like, is it is it even worth it? And I guess the the, the question is, and what we've been getting at here, 
this whole episode is all right it could be better you got to fix the money first fix the money fix the world is something i've been trying to meet more more often because i think it is as we've said the most important thing to fix like as colin his a uh, very invigorating uh uh speech speech i'll say it's a speech uh earlier in the podcast like if we want to fix this we need to take control of the money which gives us leverage against the state which is enacting all these policies that really put society in a bad spot easy times breed what is it uh weak men and hard times breed strong men or something like that what's that you you've you've put that on the pod before (laughs) yeah easy times uh breed weak men weak men breed hard times hard times breed strong there you go strong men build good times it's like there so it seems like we're uh sorry i don't i keep interrupting you uh (laughs) the one of the things that's really important about bitcoin aside from the fact that yeah we're trying to fix the money is the fact that it's encouraging for people right people like us who um we're asymmetric thinkers we we're okay with going against the grain we like to ask why, right? We want to solve problems. It's important to give people like that something to to rally around a little bit, right? Like if, if you're demoralized all the time, well then yeah, maybe it would just be better if we let the state take care of us. You know, if you can't yeah, break out of that, like what chance do you have? Dan, again, like thank God we have Bitcoin and that's, Another beauty of Bitcoin too is that you just meet these like-minded individuals who are asymmetric thinkers and not afraid to go against the grain that are just congregating more and more around this protocol, this network that we're trying to build out and meme into existence. I mean, it already is in existence, but meme into the main mainstream. Um, and that, that's what encourages me the most. And I, I said this on a couple of podcasts this week with developers who are building out the protocol, like just seeing the the uh, interest around protocol development specifically and, and more and more people coming to Bitcoin to help build this out is highly encouraging. Absolutely. Gentlemen, I wish we had another hour and a half to rip here. Um, unfortunately, I have to go. Is there any parting notes or thoughts that you guys want to want to end on before we wrap up here? Yeah, if anyone knows what the fuck happened in 1971, please let us know. Yeah, we keep asking everybody. I just get a lot of bad <laughs> answers. Like someone said it was Disney World. I'm not so sure. <laughs> hey. Uh could have been Disney yeah. World. Who knows? I don't hey. Might have been Nixon. Might have been uh the opening up of, of the ability of divorce. Who knows? Who knows? There's a lot of weird things going on at the same time. Um gentlemen, I really appreciate your time. Uh, we should definitely do this again and expand on some of these topics, uh, dive into the nitty gritty of, of every way in which the inflationary monetary policy that persists throughout the world sort of erodes, uh, the quality of life on this planet. Thank you so much for having us on Marty. Long time coming brother. (laughs) I know. I can't wait till, uh, we can all congregate back in New York and, and get it in another burger at That'd be amazing. Uh, I severely missed that place. And thank you. Um, thank you to the freaks. Shout out to the freaks. You yeah. guys are you guys are the best. Always a pleasure. Yeah. All right. Keep crushing it, guys. Really appreciate the work you're doing. Um, peace and love, freaks. <laughs>